receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Almighty God, it is by your Holy Spirit that the words of Scripture have been inspired. We pray this day that you would send us that same Spirit so that our ears might be open and our hearts and minds might be attentive and receptive uh, to what you have to say to us this day. Uh, We trust that your scriptures are the words of life, and so we ask this day that you would feed us and that you would make us alive. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So it is my custom to um, preach through whole books of the Bible at a time. That method is called Lectio Continua. It's uh, something that we inherit from uh, our Reformed forefathers. The the, uh, Swiss reformer John Calvin preached in a number of uh, churches throughout the city of Geneva. He preached seven days a week. And he would travel from one pulpit to the next, and the pulpit Bible would lay open on the pulpit, and he would simply begin his preaching where he had left off the last time he was in that pulpit. One of the distinctives of the Protestant Reformation is that we trust the Word of God to be sufficient for all that we need to know about life and faith as a Christian. And when we preach through whole books of the Bible at a time, we are recognizing that all of the Bible, all of the chapters of the Bible, the chapters that we like and the chapters that we don't like, from Genesis to Revelation, that all of Scripture is the Word of God and that all of it is useful for us for our instruction as Christians. I always worry about people who preach the lectionary, as they do in a number of churches, which is a selection of the Word of God. You know, highlights. I often wonder, well, who who has the right to determine what's in and what's out? What will be preached and what will be left out? I wouldn't have the courage to make that determination. And even worse than the lectionary style of preaching is pastor's choice preaching, you know, where the pastor gets up and talks about the thing that he wants to talk about and then goes finds the scriptures that back him up. Maybe you've been in a church like that. It is my custom to preach straight through whole books of the Bible as a discipline because it forces me to deal with passages that are uncomfortable for me, that I would rather not deal with. 
It's probably uncomfortable for you sometimes. Some of those passages, you're like, why is the pastor preaching that? This morning, however, I'm starting a series of sermons that are not going to be delivered that way. I'm going to be doing a topical series on the doctrine of creation. I'm going to be running at least six weeks on this. In the early service, I discovered that my sermon this morning is actually three sermons, and so maybe it'll be nine weeks. I'm not really sure. We're going to trust God with this. It has been my growing conviction during my time as your pastor that the doctrine of creation is foundational and fundamental to our faith. And I worry that well-meaning Christians have backed away from it, that they're uncomfortable with it, that maybe they're embarrassed by it. And yet, if the doctrine of creation is true, it changes everything in the Christian life. It changes how we view ourselves. It changes how we view God. It changes how we view human society. It changes how we view the purpose of life. And so I want to spend a number of weeks looking at the doctrine of creation. And then after we talk about the doctrine of creation, we're going to spend another number of weeks, maybe up until we get to Easter, talking about the doctrine of providence. So as Christians particularly as Reformed Christians, we believe that God not only made the world, but that God governs the world. There are people who believe, you know, that God is the creator, that he made the clock and wound it up and then walked away from it and let it run on its own, which is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God made the world and that God remains intimately involved in the operation of the world In every moment of every day. In fact, there is no single molecular chemical reaction that happens in the world that God doesn't have his fingers on. Even at that level, God is involved. And so we call that principle God's providence. It's God's governorship or God's guidingness of the creation that he's made. First he makes the creation, then he guides his creation. I think it's an important doctrine for us to wrap our minds around. That doctrine is particularly important in helping us understand the history of salvation, why things unfolded the way they did. And I think that doctrine is also helpful for us to understand what's going on in our own lives. Sometimes we look at our lives and they are a mess. And we think, why is why is this? Why am I in such a jam? Why why have things turned out this way? And having a robust doctrine of providence helps us make sense of those things and helps us navigate those very, very difficult times uh, in in our lives. Now, this morning we've we've read uh, you know two touchstone passages uh, related to the doctrine of creation. Part of uh, chapter one of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, there are actually two separate and distinct accounts of the creation of the universe. And and we'll be spending a lot of time in those chapters. 
But then also we took a look at the, the, the prologue to the Gospel of John, which is this kind of cosmic view of creation, and which uncovers for us the reality that the word that was spoken on those six days of creation was none other than Jesus himself. And that Jesus was the means by which this world came into being. There are some Christians who have this mistaken idea that, well, you know, in the beginning there was, there was God the Father. And then, at Christmas, God the Son shows up. We've got two-thirds of the Trinity so far. And then on the day of Pentecost, finally the Holy Spirit shows up and we have the whole Trinity. Which is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, reveals God as a trinity. And there in Genesis chapter 1, we have all three elements of the trinity present. God, who is, I guess, orchestrating the events. The Holy Spirit, who is hovering over the water. And the Word of God, the second person of the trinity, Jesus himself, who is the means by which the creation comes to be. This morning, what I want to do is offer the sermon before the sermon series. I want to talk about the doctrine of creation. I want to talk about the universe. But before I talk about the creation, I want to talk about the creator for a little bit. I want to talk about what God was doing before there was a world. This morning I want to take a look at several passages of Scripture that talk to us about the activity of God prior to creation. Okay? Now, I trust that you understand that time is part of creation, that there isn't time before creation. And when I say prior to creation, I'm talking about prior in some kind of non-temporal way. But there is activity of God before the creation happens. And I want us to be aware of that because the character of the creator is going to have a lot to say about the nature of the creation. All right? You might want to pull out your Bibles. Those of you who are Baptist will have brought your Bible with you. Because I want to go through a number of passages. I want to begin in, in the Gospel of John and the first passage I want to read is, is John chapter 17, verse 5. This is a little clue about what God is doing before creation. John chapter 17, verse 5. This is actually part of a prayer that Jesus offers for the apostles and then by extension for you, people who've been converted because of the teaching of the Gospels. It's called the High Priestly Prayer. Jesus is there at the Last Supper. You know, things are coming down to an end. And Jesus makes a final prayer to the Father for this core, for the, for the, for the church. And here's some of what we find there. John 17, verse 5. And now, Father, Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you 
before the world existed. Well, there's a whole bunch in there, isn't there? Jesus is before the world existed. Please don't make the mistake of thinking that Jesus shows up on Christmas morning. He was already there. He was there before the world was there. And one of the things that we discover about him is is that he's with the Father. Jesus is not by himself. The Father's not by himself. They're together. They're, in fact, eternally together. And he's with the Father before the world was created. And he is glorious. The glory of Jesus doesn't come after the resurrection of Jesus. We talk about that him being glorified in his resurrection. But Jesus was already glorious before. Okay, He's in the presence of the Father and he's glorious. Now, the term in Hebrew for glory and we have to assume that the writer of the Gospel of John is a Hebrew. He's writing in Greek, but he's thinking in Hebrew. And the word in Hebrew for the glory of God has to do with light shining. Somehow, in some way, I, don't, I can't explain it, but God glows. He radiates, he emits light. We call it the glory of God. And Jesus has this glory before the world existed, where he was hanging out with God the Father. That's something that happened before the creation. Further down in that same chapter, this is John 17, verse 24, we hear a little bit more about what's going on before the creation. Father, Jesus says, I desire that they, this is the apostles and us by extension, that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So Jesus has glory that he's received from the Father. It's been given to him by the Father. It's been given to him by the Father because the Father loves him. One of the first things that we learn about the character and the nature of God in time before eternity is is that God is a loving God. Who does he love? Well, there's no one else to love but himself. We're not here yet. But he loves the Son and he loves the Holy Spirit. The triune God is a loving relationship. Loving is fundamental, foundational, primary, elemental to God. It's who God is. You can't have God aside from his lovingness and his relatedness. To be God is to be in a relationship. God is not independent someplace. He's not the unmoved mover. He's a relationship among these three persons in the Trinity. So Jesus, the Word of God, is with the Father when God began to create the universe. We also know from our reading from John 1 that it is through Jesus that the world then is made and further that Jesus was life. We need to talk about this a little separately. And that... Also, he was light. 
Let me read for you again. You can go to John chapter 1 if you want to. I'm going to go right back to the passage that we started with. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Some of you probably have these verses committed to memory. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. The world is made by Jesus. And without Jesus was not anything made that was made. Okay, so Jesus, who is the Word of God, the second person of the Trinity, is the agency, the means by which God creates the world. Further, verse 4, in Him, in Jesus, in the Word of God, was life. You can imagine a creation where there is no life. Go to Pluto. There's no life. Go to Mars. Ah, they're looking for life. There's no life. Go to the surface of the sun. There's no life. They're created things. They're wonderful things. But they're lifeless things. And so while we wonder at the marvels of creation, we should wonder even more that there's life in this world. It's one thing to make a billion suns with a trillion planets. It's another thing to make life. And in whom is that life? Well, it's in Jesus. I don't know what it is that separates a living thing from a dead thing. You know it when you see it. There's something different between a living thing and a dead thing. What's the difference? Well, it's life. What's the source of that life? Well, it's Jesus. Jesus makes the universe. He makes the the dead orbs, the moon, lifeless. He makes the nebula But he also makes life, and then further, and the life was the light of men. This is a more mysterious passage, and we're going to unpack that little passage a lot over the coming weeks and months. The life was the light of men by light. We somehow mean illumination. We're talking about understanding. It's a wonder that there are all of the starry hosts. It's doubly wonderful that within all those starry hosts, there is at least this one planet on which there is life. By the way, we have never detected life anywhere else. You might want to think about why that is the case. I think it's called the Drake Equation. It's a calculation of the number of planets in the universe that would, in principle, be able to support life. And the number is extremely large. Which then raises the question, 
If there are extremely, if there is an extremely large number of planets capable of sustaining life, and the universe is extremely old, so that life could have lived on that planet and evolved on that planet for a long time, why have we never heard from any other people in the universe? The Bible doesn't say that we are the only creatures in the universe, but the data so far indicates that. So there is the universe, marvelous in its own sense. There is life, which is wonderful. But then there is also light, which here means understanding, reason, the capacity to know. I think it's wonderful that there are animals on the planet Earth. I like animals, especially the, the tasty ones and the cute ones. Uh, but here's the thing to note. How different would the creation be if all that there was on this planet were gerbils and dogs and cats? And no creatures... Able to know God. What a very different creation it would be. There's three, at least three tiers to this mystery. One, that there is a creation at all. Why is there something rather than nothing? And second, how is it that living things are there, composed of dead things? Okay, we are living creatures, but we're composed of dead chemicals. And then third... That some of those living things also have the capacity to know and to understand God. It should blow your mind. Jesus is the maker of the orbs of heaven. He is your life. Okay? You're alive because of Jesus. And he is also your light, your reason. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Those are all things that have happened before the creation. And also something that happened before creation is, is that God knew about the atonement. I'm now going to flip over to First Peter chapter 1 verses 19 and 20. First Peter chapter 1 verses 19 and 20. This is uh, the beginning of a sal- long kind of salutation that, that Peter offers to the church in general where he's kind of describing the relationship of the church to Christ and to the to the whole Godhead. But in these two verses, First Peter 1, 19 and 20, we read, the precious blood of Christ is like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest, was shown off in the last times for the sake of you. So these are things that have happened before the creation of the world. Uh, Jesus was foreknown by God. He was foreknown as the lamb who was without spot or blemish. He was foreknown 
as the lamb who would in latter times be revealed or manifested as the atonement for our sin. This foreknowledge in God existed prior to the creation of the world. It exists prior to the fall. I want you to see that God's understanding of the atonement is in place before He's made the world, before He's created human beings, before human beings messed it up. God already knows what the solution to this problem is. And in that same before time, God also decreed the fullness of the gospel. Now, keep in mind, everything that we're talking about today is stuff that happens before the six days of creation. I'm trying to answer the question, what was God doing before he made the world? All right, so you might want to take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Verses 6 and 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. What was God doing before he made the world? Here's Paul talking about his preaching, about his gospel. And here's what he says. Yet among the mature, we, Paul, do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. In other words, it's not a wisdom of creation. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. In other words, the gospel that Paul is preaching, God had already decreed before he made the world. Paul isn't preaching New news, he's preaching old news. God has already laid out the gospel. It's been hidden, now it's revealed. And Paul preaches it to these people, and it's a wisdom that God had decreed. By by decree we mean not just that God knew it, but that God commanded by his will and by his fiat. All right? When God decrees the wisdom, it's not that God is passively observing history down, you know, through his telescope and knows what's going to happen in the future. No, God is making the future. God is decreeing it. God is decreeing this wisdom before the ages, before time began, before the six days of creation. And why has he done it? For our glory. Well, that should baffle you. Because we met the glory already. This is the shining of God, right? And God gives that shining also to his son, Jesus. Well, that's not the end of the story. The story begins to unfold when that shining of Jesus, the glory of Jesus, is then manifested in a billion Christians who were born again and grafted into Christ and share in God's glory. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, your destiny is the same as Christ's. What's true of Christ becomes true of you. His righteousness becomes your righteousness. His glorification will become your glorification. And one day you will rise in a glorified body and it's, it's going to glow. 
When did God decide that? Before you were born. Before the world was made. Before there was time. And he decided it. He didn't just discover it. He didn't discover that you were going to be a good person and would therefore be saved. He decreed it. It was his sovereign, executive decree, which God decreed when? Before the ages. For what reason? For our glory. It's a mystery. I don't know why we receive this. But let's trust that God knows what he's doing. The gospel is older than creation. One of the things to keep in mind is is that God is so total, that God is so all in control, that nothing has ever taken God by surprise, that nothing that wasn't, that is, wasn't first in the mind of God. There was a creation, there was a fall, there was a redemption. That redemption is made full when Christ returns, but all of that sits in God's hands. Let me put it this way. The cross of Christ is not plan B. It's not what God had to do because the first plan got messed up. And that can be hard to accept because if you understand what that means, it means that you have to also accept that God's plan includes suffering and death. There was a terrible, misguided bestseller by the title of When Bad Things Happen to Good People. It was written by Rabbi Harold Kushner. It was published in 1981. Maybe some of you read it. Kushner takes on uh, what's known as the problem of theodicy, which is a basic philosophical question that anyone who thinks deeply has to deal with at some point. The theodicy question is, if there's a God, and if God is all-powerful, and God is all-good, why are things so messed up? I mean, couldn't an all-powerful, all-good God prevent every bad thing from happening? Even my daughter has asked the question, why didn't God intervene in the Garden of Eden and prevent Adam and Eve from sinning? Was it not possible? Could an all-powerful God prevent all bad things from happening? Rabbi Kushner knew about bad things in a very personal way because his son Aaron was born with a congenital disease that caused him to prematurely age. Imagine having a child like that. child dies at 14 and all you can do is... Watch that child die. There's nothing you can do. You can't stop it. The child's not guilty. The child's not responsible. There are a limited number of ways to answer the theodicy question. One way would be to say, well, there is no God. Some people who suffer misfortune in their lives, they say, I refuse to believe in a God who would let bad things happen to me. As though the whole universe were about me. One possible answer to the question, if there is a God and God is all-powerful and God is all-good, how can there be evil? One, one possible answer to that is to say, well, there just isn't a God. A second answer to the theodicy 
question would be to say, there is a God, he is powerful, but he's not good. Now that might seem strange to us because we've been raised in the Judeo-Christian tradition, but there are plenty of ancient pagan religions that said precisely that. That the creator God, in fact, is a bad God and he doesn't like you at all. In fact, he wants to wipe you out. A third option, and this is the option that Rabbi Kushner settles for, is that there is a God and that he is good, but he's not all-powerful. There are simply some things that are beyond God's control. I think Rabbi Kushner lands on that option because he wanted to hold on to the idea of God and he hated to think that God wasn't good. And so it seemed to him the only logical option was to reduce the power of God so that the bad things that do happen in our lives are things that are beyond God's control and so he's not to blame. I mean, his son does die, this terrible disease as a teenager. The only problem with that point of view, and there is a certain logic to that point of view, the only problem with that point of view is that it is not what the Bible says. Let me offer just a couple of things that the Bible says about God's Sovereign control of the universe and then we will turn to communion. Matthew 10, 29, Jesus says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. God knows about the death of individual animals. Okay? You see a squirrel squashed in the road uh-huh part of god's plan shocking but true isaiah 45 7 yahweh declares i form light and i create darkness i make well-being and i create calamity i am the lord who does all these things the good things and the bad things nothing is independent of god and at the end of job that great book of Wrestling with the question of theodicy, we hear Job in his defense before Almighty God finally affirm to God, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God is all-powerful. To understand how God can be all-powerful and all-good while there still is evil in the world requires a little bit more work. I'm sorry that Kushner didn't do that additional work. Uh, we will talk more about that uh, next time, but certainly a touchstone verse for many of you on, on that uh, question is Romans 8.28, which affirms that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to God's purposes. Let us pray. Father God, we ask that you would seal to our hearts the truths of your scripture. We pray that we would be in continuous wonderment at you, that we would honor you and bless you with our lives and with our hearts uh, each and every day. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. At this time, uh, we're just going to skip directly to our communion hymn. That's in your bulletin number 213.